Welcome everyone to our podcast, Land and People, where we interview people who have ancestral ties and professional ties to the land. I'm Melissa Kamara. I am a conservationist and artist here on Hawaii Island. And I'm Clay Chowernick, the Extension Specialist Faculty at the Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Management at University of Hawaii at Manoa. So our guest today is Hank Oppenheimer. He is a a renowned botanist here in Hawaii. He has found species that are plant species that are new to science and has refound ones that we thought were extinct. Um, he has been on the land for at least 30 years. We didn't get an exact number. I feel like it's between 30 and 40. Um, just surveying areas all over Maui and now Maui Nui as the uh, Maui Nui coordinator for the Plant Extinction Prevention Program. Um, he lives out in West Maui. And and he has been directly impacted. You know, the first one we've talked to who's out there on that side, specifically dealing with the aftermath of the August 8th fires. Fires before, right? This is. Yeah, and fires before. Yeah. My recent interactions with Hank have been this the fire that happened just the year before 2022 that is not, mm-hmm. not even on folks' radar, but uh, it was bigger than the one that burned down Lahaina, um, but right in started in the pretty much right in the same zone, but this time burned up the mountain. And so it's like one of those fires yeah. we haven't seen one go up that high into these into the forest as high as it went. And so it just kind of speaks to the vulnerability on both sides, right? Sort of the community side as well as the the mountains, forests, other ecosystems that are out there, and just how frequent these events happen, right? Hank knows probably better than anyone how fire impacts communities and the mountain, you know, Um, as you'll hear right there at the very beginning, we just get right into it, you know, the human, human side of it. And um, it's pretty emotional. It's yeah, it's an impactful one. And it's a personal one. All of us are still processing just the impact socially and, you know, with our friends and, and, and others that this has had. And it's, you know, it's still so fresh. So I was just I'm really more than appreciative of, of him taking the time and, and the sort of level that he was willing to share with us. So with that, we'll introduce our next guest, Hank Oppenheimer of the Plant Extinction Prevention Program. All right, here we are. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our show, Land and People and Water and Fire and Everything. (laughs) Nice to see you, Hank. Yeah. Nice to see you both as well. Hank was has been bugging me about interviewing other people, and I, oh. I kept warning him. I was like, well, don't <laughs> worry, you're, you're on that list. So we appreciate the the, the ideas for, for folks, but I, I'll, we also very much appreciate that you're willing to, to chat as well. Yeah, I thought I'd be like, you know, a hundred more people down the list. Oh, no. <laughs> and, uh, um, I'm honored and humbled that you've invited me at, at, in 2023. Well, I think I even said in the season recap that I think I even said your name on the season recap. In fact, I'm sure I did. So you had fair warning that we were going to hit you up for an interview. But here we are, like diving deep into Maui unexpectedly. You and I last spoke two days into three days into the fires. I think we were both pretty, it was pretty emotional conversation. And um, I was just trying to account for people just to make sure people were safe that I knew 
over there and thank God you were one of them. And we were talking about all of it, right? Um, it's still really emotional. And, yeah, um, deeply. Yeah. Um, it's traumatic for a lot, a lot of people here and will be for years and years. A long time. Lifetimes. Sort of gut-wrenching when you think about, you know, for so long we're thinking about the value of prevention and, you know, reducing risk beforehand and, you know, so many, so many, so many of these fires, it's more of the impacts up on our forest or down the reef that we're talking about. Oh, we can't, we can't recover, you know, from this. Like we can't, this is not going to come back. This is not going to come back. And now just to sort of talk about it in the context of people is like, uh, it's, I think any of us ever really thought through that or yeah, it's totally another level. Yeah. Well, you've thought about it, Clay, because you've, you know, done a lot of work studying fire, more on ecosystems, but it must have crossed your mind that, you know, there is, you know, close proximity to people. Yeah. The 2018 fires that burned down homes in Lahaina, they lost 21 homes. I thought that would do it. Same year, we had this huge fire on West Oahu that was like right up to everyone's home. It was just three valleys burning at once. I thought that would do it. And then I'm like realizing, do what? <laughs> do what, right? Like who, who's going to sort of step in and sort of organize the set at the scale that needs to happen? So it's a little bittersweet, not a little bit. It's very bittersweet in the sense that this is what it took to, to kind of grab people's attention. Yeah. Right. And there's, there's a lot of finger pointing and there's still investigations and there's a lot of unknowns. And, you know, I don't want to go down any, yeah. you know, rabbit holes of conspiracy. And I, I'm certainly not a spokesperson for anybody but myself. I don't represent Maui or Hawaii opinions. I, I'll take a note from what you usually state in the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> you know, the disclaimer. The yeah. disclaimer. <laughs> You might want to do it, and I'll just chime in after him. Yeah, what they said. We appreciate you even want to come and talk about this, which is so deeply emotional. I mean, for me too, Hank. I mean, I worked up in all those places for a while, and what was unfolding, I just was in shock. I think we were all, I was really naive to what could happen to people there. Yeah, well, when I first spoke to you and you asked me if I would speak to a reporter or a journalist mm -hmm. and, I, and I declined at the time yeah. and I wasn't sure, yeah, yeah. you know, if I wanted to, you know, come on your show at all. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. Cause I, I've been an <laughs> avid listener to your podcast. <laughs> and, you know, and I know you guys, and, you know, yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's just really sad. Yeah. I mean, that's all. I went through a really angry period. Now it's just, episodes of anger and frustration and, yeah. you know and I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones i'm so grateful like my house didn't burn down in the scheme of things yeah i've been inconvenienced by a power outage and an interruption of telephone and tv and internet but you know i know people that were lucky to get out with the shirts on their back and yeah. you know their lives are in disarray and yeah it's difficult to to decide what i can do to help right i mean there's a lot of help 
from all over the world, which is amazing to see. I think the most amazing thing was just the community response, like on day two. Totally. It was the Coconut Wireless, I guess, because there were these distribution hubs, you know, in Honokawai and down the street from me at S-Turns and Tahana Boat Ramp and the Pili yeah. Plaza where people just had food and water and toilet paper and diapers and it was just amazing to see that just appear yeah yeah it was immediate. almost overnight literally overnight mm-hmm. you know it's just incredible Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it has been incredible. I was just speaking to a friend who I didn't know her house burned down until this morning when I talked to her out in Kula. And it's the same thing. I mean, not the same and nearly, of course, the town, you know, of Kula didn't burn down. But I just said, I can't believe how resilient you are. I mean, her house burned down, but their studio, her art studio did not. So she and her family are all crowded in there. Um, she has disabled family members and so forth and she's caring for her, but, um, you know, she was on her way to Lowe's and I just said, I can't, it's just like, you're just the same as before and that you're just like so practical, head down, just moving forward. And she's like, if it wasn't for the Kula community coming together in this rest, big restaurant, in the volunteers and everything going on with the gulch work, she's like, I'd be in way worse shape. It's amazing, you know, like you said. So that's happening both in East Maui and West Maui. Yeah, I think Kulu was overshadowed. Yeah, I do too. By the magnitude of the apocalypse. You know, it's not even yeah. a catastrophe, it's an apocalypse for mm-hmm. Lion. Oh, yeah. And Kulu has been overshadowed in a lot of ways, you know, but yeah, you know, 21 people lost their homes and there's still restrictions on water use in part of Kula. And, and Dofa is still going out to Olinda, you know, monitoring hotspots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's two months later and I, I haven't heard, I haven't heard an official announcement that any of these fires are extinguished. They've been contained from 90 to 100 percent, but nothing has been declared extinguished. Yeah. You have to play a bit conservative on that side because if you do get a rekindle, right, um, and then it starts dictating what kind of assistance that the fire departments are, elig- are eligible for. But yeah, that was a big, a big deal, especially within the you know kind of immediate aftermath of people just sort of rushing out. The media storm was insane. Yeah, and unfortunately, there's there's some really sick people in the world that have said things that are not even close to being true. Oh yeah, 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 just taking advantage of, you know, the horror and the multi-level failure of many different entities and then trying to create further division and further mistrust and just adding salt to the wound, you know, but it's, yeah, it is shocking to see that all come into play. I, I can't speak to their motivations to making stuff up, you know, things that are really hurtful at a time when there's so much grief. It's just yeah, unfathomable. For sure. I mean, some aspects are so blatantly opportunistic, it is pretty disgusting. Um, other ones, I look at it as it's like people struggling to process what really happened. You know, I mean, you can be a little bit more patient for that and a little bit more empathetic perhaps, but there's a lot of people that could not and still cannot like process the destruction, the level of destruction, right? So a lot of, I think that conspiracy that you're, you're sort of struggling, grasping at straws a little bit to just, you know, to really comprehend how devastating this was, and, um, the destruction it caused. Right. Well, you know, speaking to your friend, Melissa, how practical she is. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people 
that are traumatized and they and they recognize that they're traumatized and there's yeah. there's been outreach for people you know to get help but i think there's going to be a lot of uh post-traumatic stress disorder oh yeah, yeah. people are deferring it yeah and it's gonna hit it's gonna hit a lot of people later yeah it's gonna come i mean my girlfriend who's been doing counseling um she's been flying over to help was just describing you know in the early days just it's like total like days just completely yeah. unable to even process and just like looking for papers for their just to replace papers you know birth certificates and mortgages and you know titles and i mean and so that is still happening to some degree and then what comes behind that is 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 i can't even imagine what's coming behind that but um i i am glad to see that there's some big assistance, at least in the papers reported for mental health. I think 17 million is what I'd heard, but how that gets to two people is a whole other matter. And, you know, whether folks are going to seek it out because so many don't, that's the other concern is that people are in the shadows, just not just unable to even recognize that they need that kind of help. Right. And unfortunately, there's a there still is a stigma about mental health issues. And so some of these, some of this outreach has occurred in the same sites as like the distribution hubs. Oh, right. You know, so I could see how there's some hesitation for people to be seen going into, even if it's a closed tent and not, mm -hmm. you know, just a shaded canopy, like people yeah. seeing that going in because there's this unfortunate stigma. And to me, there's no shame in asking help. And I'm not afraid to say that I cry often over this when I see it. And I know a lot of people that, that will admit that and talk about it. And I think there's other people that kind of bury that, which I don't, I don't think is healthy. But people deal with yeah. grief in different ways. A friend of mine, too, is like the darkness is, descends, you know, and then there's like moments of light where you're helping other people. You feel activated and it gives you a sense of purpose. I mean, does that does that mirror at all with what is going on with you? Yeah, well, in, in the beginning, you know, uh, well, nobody knew like how long some of this was going to go on. You know, the scale of it wasn't known. There, there was I wasn't getting good information being in the you know the bl the blackout area. You know, I could sit in my car and turn on the radio, and you'd get something every hour and it'd be the same thing over and over you know they would and well for more information log on to our website i'm thinking we don't have internet here you know it's like so all of that stuff on the radio is geared for people outside the affected area yeah and it wasn't as much you know inside so there was a lot of rumor mm -hmm. unfortunately and um but i went through like you know i don't know what to do to help and you know, there are some really just amazing, wonderful organizations. And then there's ones that just pop up and that you've, you've never heard of. And, you know, most of them are probably really on the up and up, you know, and but you, ne you don't know. Yeah, it's hard to track, hard to track all. Of, I mean, even the response, right? Even like thinking about the practical things and people are trying to Gonna pick up pieces and understand who you know. How do we rebuild? It's just so hard to track all of the interest. It's like on one hand, it's like a good thing you see these people that are trying to do things. Um, 
Yeah, but on the other, you can also see that just it's just a really difficult situation to keep track of who's doing what and you know what help is even needed, right? Well, I think I think the immediate help has been the housing, you know. So you know they did get I think everybody who wanted it into a, a hotel room or or a condo, but you know people are being shuffled around and people are being evicted, which supposedly wasn't going to happen. And you know it's it's a, it's just a lose lose situation it's like there's not any one answer to any aspect of this that's going to make everybody happy Mm -hmm. you know the mental health persists you can't have any certainty and that's where i think yeah so much of this is sort of still sitting people are grieving and they don't want to go back to work and like put on a happy face and and serve visitors or and be asked those questions like oh did you lose your home or anything like that but also there's people you know that need their need their jobs you know or they're going to lose their home even if their home doesn't burn if they don't have a job they can't pay the rent or a mortgage and Maui was already in like a housing crisis right 8,000 people or you know whatever the number is I don't think we really know what the number is but there's like 8,000 people that need housing yeah 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 you know we know people that left they barely got out you know alive and went to the airport you know got a Kalui got a hotel and then got on a plane and left because they were in uh, the senior living and they mm-hmm. waited years and years for an opening. Yeah. And the rent is based on your income and they're on a fixed income, retired. And you know, we'll never be able to get a place like this here again. So right. they just, you know, move to the mainland for with friends or relatives. And I think there's probably a lot of stories like that. Yeah. Hank, I mean, there's so many things we could say about West Maui. And there, I have so many questions for you. I'm not sure where to even go with this, if we should go to the beginning. <laughs> I know, back up a little bit. Yeah, no, I, there's, there's a lot more I want to ask about that. But I do want to start at the beginning with telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and Clay, I always force Clay to ask the first question. You, you already, you already asked. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we always ask. We always start at the same place. Just you know, a bit about where you're from and how you connected to the work that you do now. Whether that was the experiences in your youth and growing up that really influenced maybe where where you ended up. Yeah, well, it certainly wasn't planned and it was beyond any of my wildest dreams that I would end up where I am is, you know, I always tell myself like I'm the luckiest man alive, you know, for, for a lot of reasons. I own a home. I have a great job with really rewarding work. I have a, a beautiful, wonderful wife. It's like I'm still relatively healthy, you know, so can't ask for much more than that. But so, you know, some of the story, Clay, because you kind of grew up near where I grew up. So I grew up in in Long Beach, New York. It's about an hour. Well, it might be more than an hour nowadays, but back then it was about an hour from like uh, Manhattan, like the city center. My dad really, he liked the, he liked the fish. So he wanted us to be near the water. So, you know, we just grew up like fishing and, 
head crabbing and hanging around and then you know in, in the summer when it's warm body surfing and skimboarding and then surfing and yeah, I'm kind of dating myself here but you know it was like longboard days this is like late 60s and, and I just remember sitting on a surfboard like waiting for waves because you wait for waves a lot on the east coast and you could look down and see all the ripples in the sand on the bottom and there'd be fishermen surf casting and actually catching fish and there'd be episodes of piles of seaweed washing up and you could see clams and everything it was a living ecosystem and then within a couple of years sitting on your surfboard you could look down and not even see your feet wow they killed the ocean you know or at least as part of it which a 13 year old can't really articulate these things back then surfers were not the well-paid respected athletes that they are today you know surfers were considered you know hooligans and, and ne'er-do-wells counterculture <laughs> bunch of dirtbags and uh so they you know they didn't i think my brother actually wrote a letter to the newspaper which got published about disappearing feet and it's like you know, oh, it's surf, surfers. And then it turned out like the city of New York would put all their trash on a barge and take it out, supposedly 12 miles, which really isn't that far, and dump it. And they were doing this for decades. And then one year, the wind just blew consistently for weeks and weeks from that area on shore. And all this tar balls and crash and needles washed up. And they had to close a hundred plus miles of beach on Long Island and people were like oh yeah maybe we have a problem so that kind of pun intended planted the seed like how fragile an ecosystem could be mm -hmm. you know and the other side of that is being a young surfer you know and just craving anything you can you know read or a movie or anything about surfing and you of course read surfing started in Hawaii and Hawaiians made surfboards out of koa and willy willy wood trees that only grow in Hawaii and I'm thinking but what trees that grow there or not here you know like a 12 year old kid doesn't know anything about endemism or biogeography was like wow okay so that's like in the back of my mind and then when i moved here and i can't really i remember seeing the koa trees for the first time i think it was like in the kolaos and mm -hmm. willy willy's blooming i want to say mokalea you know but yeah. i don't really know like who pointed those out like how did i know those were those trees you know yeah i guess that was the uh the latent you know seed that was planted in the back of my head it just progressed and i guess i was just in the right place at the right time when somebody needed volunteer you know and 30 years ago it, there weren't that many jobs in conservation it was like none mm -hmm. I asked around at Haleakala National Park or, or at mm -hmm. Dofa. There just wasn't really any. Now it's all these projects are having a hard time like finding people. people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's it's grown tremendously and there's like so much incredible work going on. Conservation workforce is a is a, a significant segment of our economy. It brings in, I don't know if anybody's ever looked at this and quantified how much grant money comes in. It's certainly if you include like marine programs, it's mm -hmm. probably triples the amount of terrestrial money that comes in. But mm. 
Yeah, it's really significant. One of the barometers is like the Hawaii Conservation Conference. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember being at the the second or third one and there'd be like maybe 100 people in the room and it was just like, where's, you know, like it's just a bunch of owls, like where's the home? Now now it's like there's this opening protocol and it's just, it's it's just, it's incredible. Yeah, it is. What were you doing when you came out here like well i came to surf you know oh, i love it he admits <laughs> came to surf, kind of reluctant kind of reluctantly but but yeah it was to surf and then we'd always been like outdoors like when i was a kid i was in the boy scouts and we'd camp yeah you know when there's no surf you know a hike or whatever i just always wanted to have like an outdoor job even though i, I didn't always have an outdoor job like those were preferable you know and then yeah the opportunity just came up i went through a lot of different jobs and i think i've read somewhere where the average person changes careers like seven times over their mm-hmm. life in the workforce so those that have gone to school and got their degree and, and went right in good for you you know what you wanted to do like from a young age i mm. i didn't I, I just wanted to serve i love that i mean and it's so cool that you're super honest about that because there's an a nothing wrong with that and b i don't think many of our guests who came here to surf admitted that that's actually how they ended up here <laughs> you know um i i was reading i, I don't want to mention any names i was just reading <laughs> something an interview with somebody else who's worked on the hawaiian floor and, he, and they came to hawaii because some job came up and they're like well i moved to hawaii i never thought i'd move to hawaii i'm not a surfer <laughs> well what year was this because uh, i want to find out if this is if I'm remembering this correctly, or maybe I'm thinking of someone else, but I think Chuck told me that you guys were on the Waihei Trail together looking at, at the Botany book, like for the first time when he, that would have been like 91 or somewhere around that where you're like trying to figure out what plant is what. And yeah, so I, was that you? When I first moved here to Hawaii, I moved to Oahu and that was in uh, 1978. Oh, okay. I want to say it was like March 16th because I got off the plane. Uh-huh. And my friends who picked me up said Eddie Aikau was missing. So the Hokule had just oh. overturned. Yeah. So that oh. was, I stepped off the plane. Of course, growing up surfing, it's like, yeah, you, you know who Eddie Aikau is. You've mm-hmm. seen all the pictures of him running giant waves and heard about all the rescues he's done. And uh, just like, wow, you know, maybe I'll get to see Eddie Aikau at sunset or Waimea one day. And oh. then Oh, gosh. You know, and then I moved to Maui about five years later. And, mm-hmm. you know, so that was like the 83 maybe. But I do remember hiking with Chuck a couple of times and, and looking at plants and trying to figure out, you know, like Sierra Club hikes or just club where you would have access to where maybe you didn't have access before. You might meet like-minded people. Actually, I met Marita on a Sierra Club hike. That's I met my wife on a Sierra oh, Club that's hike. That's so cool. There it is. Plants bringing it all together. Maybe that's a shameless plug for the Sierra Club. I'm not, you know. Anyway, but I, yeah, I remember go, being on a couple of hikes with Chuck. Everybody loves Chuck. I mean, he's awesome. <laughs> he's got a great sense of humor. He's like super smart. So just to have somebody else on one of these hikes that you know was like a botanical nerd. Yeah, but he's like you. That was not his training at all. He was medicine. So he was like trying to figure out what what is what here that we're looking at oh i i thought uh no. i thought he came up because lloyd Lupin no. offered him a job and moved to buffalo yeah oh my god okay super small digression but he was brought over when he bailed on medical school he started applying all over the place lloyd hired him because he had 
computer, quote unquote, experience, which was just checking people into a lab. That's mm -hmm. it. He did not have any computer experience. And then oh. he was told to go and fix and maintain the Tom's weather stations oh, okay. without a manual. So it was like, that's how you get, that's in that context. That's why you, how you guys were looking at plants together. Yeah. Yeah. Hilarious. You know, some people have called those kind of things like competition that I don't view it as, you know, competition or what it's, that's kind of a strange mindset. You know, it's just having that. It exists. That atmosphere. Wow. We're learning all this stuff and we're going to places and seeing things we've never seen and right. trying to figure out like what they are and the manual of flowering plants came out right in that beginning of when conservation was just exploding in Hawaii. There was natural air reserves and nature conservancy mm -hmm. was acquiring more preserves and you know it was it was just an ama amazing time. There was like oh mm -hmm. here it all is. not all of it but flowering plants you know like yeah. one really thick expensive book. Oh, yeah. It would have been a lot of money in those days, you know, since botany is such a great paying profession. <laughs> but actually, speaking of Chuck, he did have one question I do want to ask on his behalf. This is an invitation for you to brag, um, just full disclosure. So he wants to know how many new species unknown to science have you helped describe or have you dis quote unquote discovered? That's part A. Part B is how many species that were previously thought to be extinct, have you re-found? Do you know? Because he, he's putting money on on that it's double digits in both categories. I don't have a running tally, but it's... Oh, he, he knew, said you were going to say that. It's like around 10 new species. Okay. Which, you know, is just amazing to me. Like the first time it's like, what is this? And, you know, I remember with my dear friend Fern Duvall and finding these cyanias and bringing the leaf over to another dearly loved departed colleague, Bob Hobby, and bringing a leaf to his house. And, and what is this, Bob? And Bob was like, I don't know what that is. And Fern and I looking at each other, it's like, we, we stumped Bob Hobby? It's like... <laughs> God, is that even possible? I'd, I'd like to edit Chuck's questions like how many have I described? And it's always a team effort. Yeah. And it's really weird in the field because, you know, you, you go and you're with somebody and they're like, let's go this way, go that way. And maybe that's when you find it. You think, well, if I wasn't with them, I might have gone that way and never seen this thing. I missed it. You know, so it's just serendipity or divine intervention or, or just, you know, plain luck. But it's always a team effort. Of course. Whether it's field work or the, the writing or the, the research in an herbarium, it's always a team of people that have made it possible. It always just makes me think about just the value of having people out there and the value of having people that can kind of retain that knowledge, right? You learn from mentors and you, you know, you have to be, I can speak direct experience. Like if you're not out there often too, like it's something that doesn't, it doesn't all, it kind of fades, I have to say, unfortunately, but yeah, thank God we have uh botanists that can, you know, kind of help keep track of what's out there and, and kind of be able to discern when they're in places they haven't been trying to help a student here who's doing some surveys in the cult allows. And he's like, 
I'm not really finding much. It's like looking for a couple couple species that are listed. And I was like, well, you know, just think about how few people have gone into the areas that you're going, right? And just like the fact, the thing that you're looking for is not there doesn't mean it's not worth it. Right. You know, with the plant extinction prevention program, we're working with the rarest plants in the world. So, yeah, you know, I used to talk to about this doing field work with Steve Perlman. You go on the field and, you know, you look for something or you're just looking for anything and you don't find anything. And Steve would say, well, there were people that would say, oh, you bombed out. That's like, well, no, we didn't bomb out. We didn't find A, B, or C, but we know a lot more than we did like yesterday. Right. People don't, you know, they hear about like, okay, a new species that someone described. And it's like, you know, nobody hears about, well, the other 99 days you were out in the field doing surgery they work and camping in the mud and not having a bathroom or shower or horrors of horrors, no Wi-Fi or whatever. <laughs> Nobody hears about all those days that lead up to the, the one day like something amazing happens. You know, they think like, oh yeah, that happens like regularly and it, and it really doesn't. When it happens, it's, it's just obviously a career highlight by whether a new species or rediscovering something that hasn't been seen in a long time. It's soon. Hank, you've been solidly in the field for like 30 something years. Yeah. I mean, that is your life. First, you were with Maui Lennon Pineapple. Is that right? And then yeah. now you're with Plant Extinction Prevention in West Maui. With that, we're, we're all over Maui. Oh, okay. Yeah. So when I started, you know, when I started, it was still called the Genetic Safety Net Program. Oh, right. There had been a pilot project on Oahu that ended and more funding. And that Marie Brugman told me, you know, at a conference, we have money, a Maui Nui Genetic Safety Net Program. And I was like, oh, I'm interested. And so... I didn't know I'd get the job. I just said I was interested because you never know who comes out of the woodwork. I got the position and I had all of Mount Maui, Molokai, and I and Kohlabe. And now we have staff on Molokai, which is great. And I always, well, every island needs their own, like, not just staff. You know, that I take that further. I go, every species needs their own person. Yeah, man. Then we're talking. I think there's enough of us out there, you know, enough, enough humans in the world that we could do that. Yeah. So other projects, you know, there's the Extinction Prevention Program, you know, in Keahi Bustamante used to be PEP. And so, you know, we like to say once a pepper, always a pepper. He'll find rare plants. And, you know, we're looking for snails too. It's everybody's being everybody else's eyes and ears. You know, if we see a missed target, we report it to mask. If we, you know, we hear TVQU, Valley Forest Brewery Recovery Project. People need, I think, to be cross-trained more and be each other's eyes and ears because there's more people out in these remote areas and there's ever so it's good you know the secret to pep's success is the collaboration and partners that we have with pep it's all of maui which was one of the things that attracted me to it was being in this more pukukui preserved silo you know so i would hike on the weekends i could mock right. off with preserve kuya forces or just to like broaden my horizon a little bit this was a chance to focus on rare plants and not just doing you know ungulate control or fence construction or weed control or do all those things but you know i feel like the stat that i try to keep in the back pocket for pep is like you know 40 to 60 species per island something in that range right so pep is dealing with these plants with less than 50 individuals in the wild. You have so much that you're dealing with about the ones that you know that are out there. I'm like, okay, here's the status of this. And so there's obviously that's going to dictate 
you need to go and trying to collect seed and trying to reintroduce. I'm just curious, how do you balance the needs you know you have with some of that work where you're like, wow, we haven't checked out that zone or been up in that place in a while. Like, is that kind of, you sort of find that intuitive or is that something you really try to get strategic about? <laughs> That's a good point, Clay, because our schedule is extremely fluid. So, you know, there's uh, more immediate demands when there's plants in the nursery that are getting root bound or too big. You know, they really got to be planted or there's plants we know we've never collected seeds from where we know like this is the time of year this species is fruiting. You know, we need to get to those plants to sample those and get them into the ex situ accessions. And then the going to the areas that nobody's ever looked at, or it's suspected one of these things that are presumed extinct might be in this area because they're sort of known from this area. The historic data is like really vague. People didn't have GPS. It wasn't that long ago when people didn't have GPS or a phone or whatever. You know, it was like a map and a compass and, uh, or maybe you, ha- you were lucky and you had an altimeter. So it just depends on other needs. And sometimes we know like we've got to get here and, and follow up. One of the techniques we use if, the, if there's immature fruit, we'll tie a nylon bag over the, around the fruit. So if the fruit falls off, it's in the bag and we can retrieve it later. So we, we really need to get there and retrieve those bags we put on. You know, we might be a little late, but hopefully there's seeds in the bag. And there's just a, a million things. You know, we got to check this exclosure fence or, you know, reset rat traps. Or there's limited time to go searching in these places that have never been looked at. But we try to incorporate that in all our field time. Like, mm-hmm. even if we got like an hour, it's like, yeah. we're do you ever go like this way, you know, and it's yeah. like, no. And the great thing is with GPS, you know, we have all our tracks mapped. We know, we know where the gaps are. And so right. when we display all those survey tracks, you can really see how much area has never been searched. Although I shouldn't say never because maybe a long time ago, somebody was in there before there was GPS. For the most part, there's a lot of areas that have never been searched by a, a botanist or a birder, an mm-hmm. entomologist, anything still. The landscape is so big. I mean, when you're thinking about getting down and like hiking ridge to ridge, gulch to gulch, you know, and, and what it takes, the amount of space you're able to cover in a day, it's incredible how big this, these spaces are. Yeah. And Maui, you know, we're so fortunate here because there's so much good habitat. There's so much protected habitat that uh, we're lucky there's still that much area that is in good condition and that has not been exhaustively searched, if at all. So that that makes it really exciting. You know, the possibilities are endless. I want to ask like a a downer question. (laughs) And and, and before, I don't want to end it on that. I'm just curious because the last time, like Hank, you and I were really talking work stuff and it sort of gets hard to even process this right now, but there there was a fire just a year ago, right above La ripped right up the mountain. And those of us who are like deal with these fire impacts and, and rare plants, talking with them, I have a student in UH who's been looking at this, who worked with Mount Okahalawai Watership Partnership, but it's like off the map, right? No one else is really thinking about this. And I tell, you was telling the media, yeah, there was this huge fire just a year ago. And everyone's like, what? You know, and so I'm just curious if you could maybe just bring us back into that space. Cause you know, you're thinking about that 
constant sort of erosion, that line that's kind of like creeping up, especially on our leeward leeward sides. Like what have been some of the changes you've seen? And right. Well, I've seen a lot of fires over the years. Yeah, you're right. That election day fire, that's when it started. I think it was like election day. We were actually in the field and saw smoke and it was like, oh no, that was devastating. That fire actually burned further Malka than any previous fire. It had been really dry and I the thickets of Luhe with the dry fronds underneath really carried it further and it was really scary because it burned into a really diverse and, and rich area and it wasn't safe to go in there for a while you know mm-hmm. the fire was still maybe burning underground or uh, you know the steep areas there was going to be a lot of erosion so you had to worry about like rolling rocks and it wasn't just plants that were lost it was a lot of snails were lost as well we're still assessing a lot of that we haven't gotten back into all of those areas but thankfully some of the rarer plants survived that uh, at least initially and it was just uh, really scary just to see it burn in further upslope than I think anybody really imagined it would. There's been lots of fires and, you know, we watch them from a safe distance and, and burn. And the standard, I agree with this, when there's a response to a fire, it's life and property and then endangered species, you know. So fire department yeah. knows about some of the rare plants, you know, but they, you know, there's nothing about saving like an intact natural community, you yeah. know, a forest, right. you know, or so much a, a water shed but it, yeah it is life first obviously nobody's gonna argue with that life and property once you're in that habitat once you're in that terrain like there's not a whole lot that you can do again it goes back the same thing we've been trying to talk about with lahaina is like all the things that you should do it should have been done long before the, the lahaina fires it, it seems to me i mean there's there's still a lot of investigation and there's probably a lot of premature finger pointing, but it seems like there was a failure to respond in a timely manner in several ways. And it all kind of unfortunately converged. Maybe there were people that could foresee that the closure of Pioneer Mill was going to result in a lot of non-native fire-adapted grasses taking over the old plantation, especially with, you know, the irrigation systems, you know, not being Functional. And again, you know, there's been just a great awareness of returning water to the streams for the stream by odor and for yeah. cultural yeah. uses, you know, which is really in our constitution. It has been really dry. There was all those factors. And then I, I won't even go into like uh, some of the other probable failures to respond. I don't mean to think, oh, it's similar as far as impacts. I just mean in the sense that those fuels and Lue is really similar in that sense. So fast, so large, so quickly that, again, the call is made and you're responding to this thing. You don't have much time to to kind of hold yeah. it so quickly out of your hands. Uh, yeah, those fire fuel breaks and other things needed to be in there for so long before all that work needed to happen way way in advance go further back and say what needed to be done instead but hindsight is 2020 but there were reports and there was after action reports that have not been made public from 2018 you know i think it's a little disingenuous when somebody tells the community like this was unpredictable and unprecedented 100 yeah we never knew and no that's not true we watched all central maui burn in 2019 yeah oh yeah 
place. 17,000 acres. What? Five, however many. I mean, we had, anyway, we don't need to like rehash all that, but it was well, Yeah, it was all, the information was all there. and And even looking back at Lahaina, that fire we're talking about 2022 right? was one of nine others since 1999. Large, like I'm not saying little, and there's who knows how many ignitions have been there that the fire department was able to contain. But you, I think there's about nine fires above over 100 plus acres and bigger, right? That election day fire was several thousand acres right. and it burned right up. Like you said, it was right up the mountain, but it was that same zone. It was right Malka of Lahaina. Um, if the wind's been going the other direction, it would have been a different. Story. Yeah, it's really amazing how the Hawaiian floor is not fire adapted given our volcanic origins. With very few exceptions, when a place burns, there's almost nothing that comes back. And certainly whatever does we sprout or get recruited is outcompeted by the really aggressive grasses that come in. My line too is similar. It's a lot of those species will not come back, but we do have a handful of species that can, but that influx of weeds, the pressure of the weeds is just- Can't separate it. Insurmountable, right? And now it's the mm-hmm. locked together. That the, the fire and the weeds is the same disturbance. It's the same. Forest yeah. You know, last summer at the conference, you know, I was at your symposium about getting seeds and how many seeds it would take to restore like an acre of land and first time I was involved with a with a wildland fire was like 94 I think you know at, at Pukui it, it was a vehicle had ignited some dried broom's edge and it burned for weeks and it would flare up because there was roots underground burning and what came back was just all you know broomstick that was all the areas that had been Luhe. it was just wow now it's like even even worse and you know we were thinking well how come we don't have literally millions of seeds in storage for every island up yeah right all the you know the keystone species right ali seeds koa seeds ohia seeds seeds that are easy to clean easy to store just in case there was a fire we could scatter the seed by air mm-hmm. you know try to to get a head start on the weeds and, and here it is like 30 years later we, we still don't have that still talking about it. i know you feel like dum-dums because after every fire you're like wait oh yeah we don't right I know. you know and there's people that always talk about we're gonna go up there and plant all these native plants and uh-huh. and they won't burn and then well you know i you're know you need literally like millions of plants which nobody has and yeah they will burn too you know that's right <laughs> like native plants they they don't have some magical, I mean, they have lots of mad rock, but they, they don't have the superpower where <laughs> they're not flammable at all. You know, you know it's interesting because Chuck and I were talking about this too, because it's just this idea somehow still that we're going to get out there and plant our way through these problems. I don't know why. And and he was like, well, maybe it's because we had early successes with restoration before so many weeds, like 40 years ago, when you did fence something before what we have now, the and many, many more things. And there was that demonstration of, okay, you fence this area and it does, does recover. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's a hard thing to grapple with because I do feel like we're always trying to explain that we can't, we're not going to plant our way out of this situation not without just a million times more resources than we have. So it goes back to what you were saying, like every plant needs a person, you know, every species, everything, you know, we need just more people. And I'm just so like struggling right now. There's this like little bit of franticness, right? Above with all these solutions coming, solutions, quote unquote, coming forward from lots of interested people who mean well, but 
I think don't aren't coming from that perspective of like it's weed. It's like pulling weeds, right? It's like you, things that we need to do to take care of this place. And I mean, even you know, from grazing, farming up through restoration, reforestation, it's it's a lot of work. And there's uh, we need more people with those skills and knowledge. Yeah, but we also need you know the seeds and the nursery stock and the horticulture. Yeah, yeah that plant material. We don't have that capacity to respond to you know right. something on the scale of these fires that we that we get yeah uh, usually i avoid cliches like the plague but an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure oh, okay. not letting these neglected if not abandoned outright agricultural areas become overgrown with this potential fuel right. what that answer is there's obviously got to be some kind of control whether it's with animals and those have to be fenced and, and controlled and, and cared for you know but they're certainly part of the solution and you know there's always a lot of ideas being thrown about and you know people are well we should do like replant all the native forest and i don't know how practical that is i mean if they're talking about restoring some of the wetlands that would be great to get some of the wetland vegetation personally i'm kind of leaning towards restoration with agroforestry oh yeah yeah same. There's a real need for being growing more of our food here, oh. you know, and Lahaina was known from its ulu trees. So I wouldn't be purist in it. Oh, it has to be like a this ulu or this kind of banana or whatever. It's just the main thing is like get food on the landscape. It's just sad, even before this, just watching a place with so much wealth and there's people that are hungry. And it's just like, yeah, that's it. You know, and there's a lot of ag, but I'm not putting down farmers that do this but gourmet coffee and proteas don't put like affordable food on the for everyday people like ulu yeah. and sweet potato would, would do yeah we have an opportunity in my opinion so, yeah to uh move forward with this because we you know we need this and it, it's always mm-hmm. talked about you know we talked about diversifying during covid nothing got done we talked about it during the recession you know after 9-11 a united airlines fight I mean, I've been watching this for like 30 years and, oh yeah, we have to diversify our economy and we never do. You know, it's always, tourism is like the low-hanging fruit. It's like the easy thing. Yeah. And it comes down, you know, I don't want to ruin a fine day with political discourse, but we need to elect people with more vision. Yeah. And the only time we're going to do that is if the voters are more educated, you know, that a motivated to vote and not so apathetic that it doesn't matter but not just vote on name recognition or, or whatever it is those are deep problems you know that aren't, aren't going to be solved anytime soon well but there is so much coming out of your community you know with regard to restoring malaulu alele and you know mm-hmm. and that is just so encouraging to hear those voices we, we just interviewed John, Jonathan Scheuer about, you know, the CONCON, 1978 CONCON, that's who was elected and who got into the Supreme Court is what changed the interpretation of water as a public trust. Mm-hmm. It was directly tied to that, you know, and it's like dropping out is not an option. Not not, not right now and not right. ever, really. And it's like, like you said, you know, it has to sh- shift with people that are motivated to get involved in those kinds of things. So yeah. I'm hopeful. I'm, I mean, I, I at least I see your community really just 
setting the vision for some ideas yeah that's good. for what you're talking yeah. about and i'm so i just think it's enlightened the community's been amazing and, and i gotta say i know because i had people from all over the country and other parts of the world like what are you guys safe are you guys safe and the whole world is watching they're watching right. the community response to this yeah you know before any official response and i mm-hmm. i think what really impresses a lot of people is the sense of community here you know it's it's not for me to say the aloha spirit but i think people are really seeing like it's different here because in other parts of the world when there's a disaster it's just chaos and pandemonium and looting and there was i've heard a couple of stories of theft but yeah there wasn't like mass riots and, and looting here it's like everybody took care of everybody else and it was just it's just like amazing what we said earlier like that people didn't know what to do now it actually is like opposite it's like people just fundamentally knew what to do in that sense yeah, of, right yeah. and, and i think that's probably a common thread i you know not to diminish hawaiian values but it's a, probably a common thread with island people all over the world mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you know like we're on this island or we're in this canoe together and yeah you know the only way you know around these obstacles is working together not fighting each other you know so just seeing this play out here is it really is amazing and it's really hopeful and it's really encouraging and i really hope something permanent comes of it and i think it will i don't think it can be ignored. No, people aren't going to let it. I mean, it, the folks I'm I'm in communication with are really quite vigilant about showing up to public hearings and other things and making it known, you know, what the vision might be. Yeah, I think everyone's sort of, it's an opportunity for that haven't been involved to learn like mm-hmm. all those people that have been involved long before the Lahaina fire. Oh yeah. Right. And they see the folks that are there that are part of that struggle are like making it so clear that it's the same problem, right? It's this mm-hmm. fact that like, our communities need the same care that the land around them needs and waters, mm-hmm. you know, all of it. And so I feel like that's that direct connection that you know, some of us that do sort of that, like some people that do sort of strict conservation might not make that connection that it is the same part of the same. Uh, but I, even there, I think it's changing. It has to get better. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that would be a silver lining that, you know, this event would be a tipping point, you know, mm-hmm. to how a lot of things are, are done. You know, also, most of the people that have been directly affected by this, they're, they're out of work. They have the time to go to these meetings. Yeah. Where, Right. People were working two jobs, you know, and juggling, mm-hmm. you know, family or whatever. And the meetings were there in Wailuku. Who wants to get off work on their second job and then drive to Wailuku and go to the meeting? Right. You know, so the voices are, they're being heard. And they, I really don't think they're going to be denied. This is, this is a tipping point. I agree. Well, Hank, we've kept you. I'm looking at the time and realizing. Has it been 15 minutes already? Yes, just 15. Just gone by like so. Yeah. Did want to ask if there's anything else you want to add on that wonderful note that you just said as we close. I can't think of like one particular thing. You know, there's just, you know, so much happening, so much in flux right now. And, um, you know, I think um, it's important that everybody talks, you know, mm-hmm. and talks respectfully, you know. 
know, and I, I remember Marina and I went to, uh, there was a super ferry meeting in Kahului, you know, and there was all these, you know, some of the legislature came from Oahu and there was a meeting and there was a lot of people in the audience and, and people were shouting each other down, interrupting them and there was yelling. And, and I think that was the first time I sat anywhere on Maui and, and just thought, what has happened here? This mm-hmm. is like, I've never seen anything like this here. Disrespect of other people's opinion. I was stunned. It was the same on Kauai at the time. I lived there. It was the same. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I would just like to hear everybody that wants to be heard, to be heard, and, and everybody respectfully listen to their perspective. There can't be just one solution to all this. It's no. like a totally lose-lose situation. There's no way to please everybody. It's so multifaceted. It's so complicated, right? Yeah. And solution by definition has got to be a complex one. Yeah. It's- and as you said, it's like multiple voices and different perspectives. I'm not the, the genius that can come up with a solution, you know? Yeah, I don't have the answer. I just know there's a lot of tough times ahead. Mm-hmm. We still got a lot of uphill to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hank, thank you so much for pouring your heart out to us. <laughs> Again, on a, on the podcast, yes. first on the phone, secondly on the podcast. Uh, I can't tell you how much we appreciate, you know, just yeah. sending so much aloha and pule and everything to Maui Komohana and to Maui across the board. So we know you all need it, and we send it our and send it your way, and recognize there's so much more ahead. Thank you, and um, you know, like I say, I'm a, a fan. I keep. <laughs> doing what you're doing here on the podcast, raising awareness about fire and natural resources and cultural resources. Mm -hmm. It just helps raise awareness and helps build a more consensus and a stronger team to move forward. Thanks. The guests do all the all the lifting. We just get to listen. Oh, wait. Speak for yourself, Clay. I do a lot. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) we depend on you guys, though. That's what it's about. If we if you didn't come on our show, there'd be no show. (laughs) 